Hey everybody, and welcome to the Whole Whale Podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies to make a difference in the social impact world. My name is Creation Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale, and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Today on the pod, we have Emily Taylor, principal of Teeny Big where she coaches nonprofits to meaningfully engage their audiences. She uses her experience with both the nonprofit and for-profit worlds in human-centered design. And this is a process that digs into a user's experience and perspective, and she turns their lackluster followers into passionate supporters. So thanks, Emily, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Carisha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited. Um, we can dive right in with some questions. So I did give a tiny intro or a teeny intro, all puns intended, um, to <laughs> <laughs> introduce you. But can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you work with people and organizations um, to really, you know, improve their audience engagement? Sure. And and to answer that question, I'll go way back um, because. Um, That's one of the things I've realized recently is is how much my upbringing has connected to this um, because I've always loved people and understanding them. I grew up very shy and awkward. And so I was it allowed me to develop the skill in listening to people Mm -hmm. and reframing what I want to say in a way that connected with them. And so I have now used that skill as I go forward in life. Um, I'm also a very passionate um, creator and problem solver. And so I spent much of my life um, designing products um, mm-hmm. as an industrial designer for, for big companies like Procter & Gamble. Um, but I've always been um, volunteering and connected in the, the mission-driven world. Um, and so I had an opportunity to use my human-centered design background, which I developed in design, Um, as well as this passion for listening to people and bring it into the nonprofit space. And um, it's just been really wonderful. Now I use it to help teach nonprofit leaders how to step outside of the expertise, listen to their audience, and Mm -hmm. create things that will engage them to participate in a way that's meaningful for their mission. Um, So now I work with arts organizations, museums, um, advocates uh, for sustainable practices and underserved populations mm-hmm. um, and really help them connect with their audiences. Yeah, that's awesome and really exciting work. Obviously, you have a lot of experience and work in this field, right? Really improving audience engagement, which at you know, first listen or first thought, it seems pretty easy enough, right? Like maybe you just post on social media or you send an email and you'll have great audience engagement. But could you tell us a little bit about maybe why that's not true or even some myths about audience engagement that you see that some of the people that you work with or the organizations that you work with kind of believe in a sense? Sure. And yeah, it can on one hand seem very easy, but anyone that's tried to engage an audience knows how difficult it can be. And so um, I think some of those easy solutions can get in the way of really solving solving these challenges. Mm-hmm. So one of the myths that I see is that um, people think that everyone has the potential to contribute to their mission, mm-hmm. which technically is true. Your your supporters can come from from any walks of life, but 
But ultimately, um, if you're not speaking directly to the people that want to support you, um, you're really reaching nobody. So we have to think about um, who you want to reach, what their similarities are, um, and and really understand how what they need to hear in order to support you. Um, another area here is that um, you know, people think if they had more marketing dollars, that would mean more donations. Mm. Um, but really, kind of along the same lines, if you don't, if you just market the same message to everybody, um, it's not going to connect with people and, and inspire them to take action. So you really need to make clear, targeted communication that motivates people um, to make take the action you want them to take. Uh, and then the last thing I see a lot is is um, sort of an over reliance on data. And I mm. I love data. I think data is very important. Um, and it can tell us a lot about what people have done in the past and how they've behaved. Um, but there's a lot of information it can't tell us. It can't tell us the why, like what motivated someone to engage with your organization, what may help them engage in the future, uh, why do they care about your work? Mm. Uh, and this is part of just humans being complicated. And so um, data can only let you see a piece of the puzzle. So there's other ways to, to fill in that whole picture. Yeah, I'm really interested in your last point. I think here at Whole Whale, we do rely on data a lot to kind of inform our next steps, decisions, and insights, both for our clients and internally, right? So could you dive a little bit more into um, what over-reliance on data really looks like, maybe through an example and kind of how you balance the scales with data there? Um, yeah, the, um, yes. So um, in terms of you know over-reliance on data, I think what happens there is that um, you know, again, you don't get to see the why. Um, mm-hmm. So we might see that um, people are attending an event or, or an event is getting um, a reduced attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we don't look at the why, we just start to make assumptions about why um, people aren't coming. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, what I might look at is how do you talk to people and really you know, survey them different ways, use qualitative research to help understand the why, if it was something in their own personal lives, um, something about the description of the event, something about rumors they heard, um, you know, it starts to get into uh, what I like to refer to as people's experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not necessarily any one thing, but their holistic view. Um, And so through that qualitative research and and human-centered design research, we can dig deeper into the whys and the motivators. Mm. Yeah, let's let's follow this thread. So can you tell me a little bit more about what exactly human-centered design is <laughs> and how organizations can kind of implement that? Um, yeah, it's definitely an overused uh, term sometimes, or it's a term where people don't really um, understand it because the design is a little confusing and what does it really mean to be human centered? Because we all care about people. Um, And so what it is, is a process for gathering feedback um, from people at different stages of the research and creation process. So Mm -hmm. um, for nonprofits, um, you know, it might be if an organization wanted to better understand how a new audience might participate in a new program, Mm -hmm. um, how, I would deal with that is I would start by understanding people's current behaviors. Mm. What are they doing that's similar to this program? How are they, um, you know, engaging in, in other things that, that might have an apples to apples comparison. 
Uh, and then I would, I might in involve some of that audience in a collaborative brainstorm on how we might meet the, the goals of the mission, um, the goals mm -hmm. of the program. And then finally, I'd find a way to prototype the most important aspects of that program and get them in front of that audience and uh, gather feedback on it. So that's three points of deep understanding that I'd be gathering from people rather than just executing a program and then assessing whether it works or not. So it, it sounds like a lot of work, but it is so much more effective than a program that doesn't make any impact. Mm. I'm interested in the, the, the brainstorming part, right? Like how do you, in a sense, engage an audience <laughs> to, you know, really participate in this kind of brainstorming? Um, and how do you get that kind of survey data? I know oftentimes, you know, maybe we'll send out a survey and maybe we'll get like a 5% response, 10% response. Um, but how do you cultivate a community that's interested in that brainstorming process, not only being a part of it, but also contributing, you know, insightful thoughts? Yeah, it, it definitely involves finding the right stakeholders. So um, you might not in, invite an entire community to participate, but finding the key leaders that that really understand the audience you're trying to connect with. You know, it might be leaders of organizations that, that people work with, um, business leaders, you know, finding the, the kind of key points and influencers within those groups. Mm -hmm. um, and then also looking for um, people that are willing to share and be open. Um, I definitely find, you know, there there's types of people that can participate in brainstorms and and ultimately, you want a diverse perspective in these these brainstorms. So it's it's helpful to go broad, but um, yeah, you really need to, uh, to to find the right people. So it is it is a little bit of um, prep work, getting the right people in that room, and then um, what I find is key is to to also um, really get into the whys behind everything. Um, because brainstorms, I know, can sometimes lead to to solutions that aren't flushed out. And so um, you really want to understand why a certain idea might be important rather than just looking at the idea. And then with regards to surveys, um, it is always a challenge. And that's, um, you know, I think there's different ways to gather feedback from your audience. You know, there is um, obviously doing more database testing, doing like A-B testing to get get feedback that way and seeing, you know, prototyping, um, you know, maybe you could prototype two program ideas, flesh them out, and then do an A-B testing with them, with your audience. Uh, you can also do surveys where you um, have open-ended questions to gather feedback, but you can also do um, interviews and, and maybe in populations where you're not getting as much feedback. That mm -hmm. is a great way to just reach out directly to the people that you want to connect with and do uh, deeper dives with them and really understand the whys behind what they're thinking, knowing that they're a small segment of the population, um, but they'll give you really great deep insight. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Thank you.
this has all been super helpful information, but I think a lot of organizations um, are really looking to maybe three steps that they can implement into their organization, maybe today, tomorrow, next week, next month, um, but really actionable steps that they can take to, um, one, improve their audience engagement and really think about human-centered design. Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely have three things that I think people can be thinking about this year. And, and one of the things I I just wanted to call out about this year in general is I feel like there's so much opportunity, um, you know, as people are rethinking how they're engaging with everything in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great opportunity to help define that for them or define that with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it goes back to the collaboration I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um but first and, and most important, um, going back to the myths that I discussed earlier, is uh, is to segment and target your audience. So a lot of times we um, have the same message that's going out to everybody, uh, and and it can get lost. Uh, but when you're speaking specifically to a, a targeted group, um, you know it doesn't mean you have to exclude others. But when you speak to a specific group. Um, they're able to better understand what you're saying and better connect with your your mission. So um, segmenting can sound overwhelming. You don't have to have infinite segments, um, but it should be something that represents your audience in a way that's meaningful to your organization and is also manageable for the capacity that you have. Um, and it might mean stepping away from common demographics like age or mm. location um, but really looking instead for patterns of behavior and the ways people behave with your organization, um, specifically to uh, social media and technology. Um, this can mean tagging people and and really thinking behind the scenes on the back end of how you're you're separating your audience. Um, and even if you're not quite sure how you're going to use it yet, it's really important to start gathering that data um, because then what you can do is start looking at how um, different people are interacting with your audience, mm. um, or sorry, how different your audience is acting, interacting with you, mm-hmm. uh, and be able to tailor some information. For instance, people that are attending an event might be more likely to participate in a, a peer-to-peer donation program, um, or people who have been with your um, with your organization a while might need to hear something different than your new audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and one example that this makes me think of is, um, you know, I'm, I've been working with an arts organization who felt like they were dragged in a lot of different directions um, with their audience's needs as they were planning events. And once they really thought about the different segments of their audience and how um, how their organization meant to them, um, they were able to see that their events were trying to be everything to everybody. And so whether it was families with kids or high concept art and artists, um, it was really difficult to plan. And so by segmenting, um, you know, not only are they more easily able to schedule the event, like make it at a time that works for, for these different audiences, but they're also able to really focus it and, and help those people uh, engage during that time. Yeah, definitely. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think we do that pretty often with ads, um, segmenting audiences so that you're not kind of blasting one message to all of Facebook, for example, or like anything like that, but really 
like you said, focusing on a pattern of behavior where, you know, a certain audience would uh, maybe be more interested in committing this action based on a pattern of behavior from before. Um, So that makes a lot of sense. And I think that segmenting audience can be implemented in a lot of different communications avenues, whether it's social media or ads or email or anything like that. Um, So I think that's one, a really great step (laughs) that organizations can take. And two, I think it'll allow people to really reevaluate the people that they're reaching um, and whether it's the audience that they want to. Yeah. And, and it really makes it um, a lot easier to do the second thing I recommend, um, which is, is see your engagement as a path and not a point. Mm-hmm. So see them as a, see your engagement with them as a path that you lead them down, not uh, a place they step up and make a transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very easy, you know, the work that you do is so important. It's very easy to think that people would immediately want to support your organization. Um, but the truth is people need to be led. Um, you know, it takes meaning, meaningful engagement takes meaningful steps. Um, you know, if you think about when you learned to ride a bike, you didn't just get on and know how to ride it. You had to feel it out. You had to understand the balance um, and the, the different uh, aspects about riding it and how to pedal. Um, and so people need to become, in the same way, people need to become more comfortable with your organization in order to feel connected to it and, and help you reach your goal. So each step they take on that path is important um, and uh, you need to explain the work you do in a different way. Um, And an example that comes to mind is some work I did with a museum, um, which we we really went in depth and understood their long-term supporters. And Mm -hmm. what we found out is as the museum grew, um, their communication was more directed towards this new audience and their longer-term supporters were starting to feel as if the mission had changed and if it had been watered down or less authentic. And so, um, you know, they realized they were still doing the great work they'd always been doing, but they weren't communicating that to their long-term supporters. So it's just an example of how you might need to, you know, segment those people and, and find some other ways to tell them what's happening behind the scenes. Right. Right. And then lastly, uh, what I think is really important is to see your work through your audience's eyes each people see the world a little differently and the same is true of your organization. So when you, especially when you segment your audience, it's a little easier to do. Um, And we do this through some of the ways I talked about before, Um, qualitative research, human-centered research, where we're listening to people, um, we're observing their behaviors and and really um, trying to break some of the assumptions we have about why they're doing things. One example is I, I worked with a bike advocacy organization that was really trying to understand why there wasn't a more diverse audience participating in their programs. And so um, some of the research we did was really understanding what people thought throughout this journey they had with the, the program. Mm-hmm. And we found out that there was just a lot of opportunities for people to not feel included whether it was language that was being used, the pictures that were being shown, mm. um, the way that you know, people were then going out into the community and the support network that they had or mm. didn't have. Um, and so once we could see that perspective, it was a lot easier to rethink the program in a way that would meet the goals of the organization. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> And I think that is a good point to kind of what you mentioned earlier, circling back to maybe an over-reliance on data at points. You know, at Whole Whale, 
we, at least for me, I work a lot of times in ads um, and we look at a lot of different metrics like landing page views or clicks on an ad or um, time on site, bounce rate and things like that. And we kind of see these numbers fluctuate um, as we continue to do, you know, different ad iterations. And a lot of times um, we're trying to figure out why exactly those things are happening, you know, and we kind of, like you mentioned before, kind of make these assumptions based on the numbers that we're seeing. But I think what that highlights is the need for a balance between qualitative and quantitative. And I think oftentimes when we're dealing with ads or email or things like that, we think that the numbers tell the whole story. Um, And sometimes they don't always. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a really good way to put it. I mean, you, you, you need both. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is just part of the complexity of people. Um, I think sometimes people might shy away from qualitative research because they think it isn't as precise. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as you just mentioned, d- data doesn't tell the whole story. And so we need to understand both the behaviors, um, you know, the, the sort of hard behaviors that are happening, as well as what's going through people's minds. Um, and one thing I'll, I'll mention, sort of a difference between human-centered research and qualitative research is really um, not just listening to people's feedback. So um, one of the, the things I see a lot is, you know, a, a nonprofit might do a survey um, and people say, oh, they would love it if events were Tuesdays at seven. And mm-hmm. so they move everything and adjust it and then people don't really change their behaviors. And I think that is a difference of, um, you know, people not necessarily being able to articulate what they would do in a specific situation because we're always inputting all this information, you know, our other schedules, our, how we feel that day, how much coffee we had, um, what we're up for. And, and it's really hard to predict those things. And that's where human-centered design and bringing um, prototyping ideas um, and bringing them out in front of people and testing to see how they might actually behave in as similar a situation as we can create um, really helps us see, uh, you know, just, just as an example of what the thing I mentioned, you could just do, you know, a quick test event, a quick coffee um, mm-hmm. uh, at a time that you thought people might want to come and, and see how people react to that. Um, and that is, that's a way to just quickly and inexpensively see if something will work beforehand um, but still, you know, gather people's feedback, the people that come, ask them why they came. Uh, and that's where, where human-centered design tries to dig a little deeper than just people's responses um, and, and really get the reactions. Right. <clears throat> and I think you bring up a really great distinction with that specific example, right? Like, I think you would send a survey, like you said, in the example, somebody says, you know, Tuesday at four would be great. Maybe we should do that instead. But again, that's maybe one or two, or even just a sample size of your largest populations, like own opinion and, or own preference. So instead of taking that as the end all be all, I think what you're really saying is human centered design is taking that and making an inference from that saying, okay, maybe people aren't always free Thursday at four. So maybe we can offer Tuesday at seven or Wednesday at three and Friday and Saturday and really seeing how, um, people respond to that. And then also bringing in metrics too, like uh, the rate at which people are showing up or the rate at which people are signing up and then also showing up. Um, So I think that's a really good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it does require a change in mindset. Um, You can't be certain about everything. And so (laughs) it, it, uh, you have to suspend your 
the need for solutions mm-hmm. and allow yourself a time to experiment. And that's um, that's really what human-centered design does is is get get in front of some of that um, linear decision-making process and allow us to explore a few things before we go there and make sure we're we're doing something that um, that allows people to act in a way that is most helpful to our organization. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think you've dropped a lot of great gems. Is there any maybe last tips that you'd want to provide for organizations? Um, let's see. Um, <laughs> oh, there I go. I would say, you know, as I mentioned before, I think 2021 is going to be a great year and the, the sort of silver lining mm-hmm. is that people don't have the same expectations. So if you struggled with engaging with people in certain ways um, in the past, uh, you have a new opportunity to help um, lay down their expectations for the future. So um, it can, I think it can feel uh, like a struggle to think through 2021 and knowing when you can do in-person versus not, but it's it's a really great opportunity to um, listen to, to people and hear what they're thinking mm-hmm. um, and and be able to kind of have a new slate. People don't have the after-school programs they're dropping their kids off. They don't have, right. um, you know, the favorite music venue that they need, they want to go to on a regular basis. Like, it's a clean slate. And so you can really be there to help them set up their new habits and, and what they'll be doing in the future so that it it really connects them with your organization. Yeah, become of their newly generated schedule. That's so exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, my word for 2021 has been potential. Yeah. Uh, and so that that's really where I see it coming from is like this, the behaviors are, are kind of a clean slate now. Mm-hmm. We might have to uh, get people away from watching movies a bit. But other than that, <laughs> we have a we have open opportunities. Awesome. Uh, thank you again for all of your insight. Um, I think a lot of organizations can take a lot, um, especially in terms of thinking about really engaging their audience, obviously, but the ways in which they can do that, uh, which is exciting. But we're not done yet. We are going to move on to our rapid fire round, which is my favorite part of the podcast, if I'm being honest. Um, It's just about 10 to 12 questions um, just to get to know a little bit more about you, your thought process, your journey into um, marketing for nonprofits, communications, and things like that. Usually 30 seconds to reply to an answer, but no pressure. (laughs) All right. I'll do my best. Awesome. So what's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Well, let's see. I feel like this past year I've had more uh, technology subscriptions than ever before. Um, but my my most fun one has been Miro. It's oh. a whiteboard and I use it to help groups collaborate on ideas mm-hmm. in workshops. Um, and it's, you know, it's just like a endless bulletin board I can make as colorful as I want. So I love it. Oh, that's so interesting. I know sometimes bulletin boards can be kind of hard online, you know, like to really get that creative, collaborative space. Um, so definitely check that out. Yeah, it takes some prep work, but it's definitely possible. Awesome. Are there any tech issues that you're battling with right now? Well, yeah, I'm I'm a visual communicator, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming from the design background. So I'm used to presenting in front of a screen and using myself and the screen um, together to share my ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I find difficult in uh, the virtual world is that you can show 
a presentation or you can show a screen. And so you either get my head or my visual mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't really have that, you know, collaborative aspect that I'm used to. Yeah. Like thinking back to the whiteboard, right? Like it's kind of hard to show people exactly what's going on in your brain on a screen. That's one of the struggles with the whiteboard is you can't really <laughs> see people while you're working on it. And that's um, frustrating. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What's coming in the next year that has you most excited? Well, I kind of, I'm, I probably will repeat myself, but I'm just, uh, I'm really excited about um, being able to scrap the way, the old way things are done and, and be able to start from scratch with um, engaging with people and, and finding new ways to bring people and community together. So um, yeah, I'm very, I'm excited for people's, um, you know, release of their isolation and um, really making that those experiences when people come together fun and new. Yeah, that is something I'm also looking forward to <laughs> next year. Lots of hugging. Yeah. Can you talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Let's see. I, yeah, one of the things I really struggled with early in my career is I'm a very um, dedicated and passionate person. And I got too caught up in projects. I would, um, there was one project I had where I got so caught up in, I spent several years of my life on it and, and it got canceled, um, mm -hmm. before it actually got implemented yeah. and I was devastated, but it taught me that, um, that you sometimes need to step outside of the work you're doing and look at it because I was so into it that I couldn't see the things that were wrong. And so I think that has been an important lesson for me is to pause sometimes and get in that different zone um, so that you're just not so attached to things that aren't working. Yeah, I agree. Taking a step back <laughs> to breathe is always very important, especially when you're kind of in the weeds of things and not really getting that bigger picture. Um, it's definitely a mistake I've made as well. Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? I think it depends on on what you define as success. Mm. If you meet your mission, yeah, that's success, and and you can go out of business. Um, you know, did the world change and you just couldn't meet up with the way it's you just couldn't adapt? I think that's fine. Um, you know, there's certainly some success in recognizing when something isn't working. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I would define that. There, there are successful ways, but it's all in how you define success. Right. Awesome. Let's just say you had a hot tub time machine that would take you back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? Um, I would say that, you know, connecting with your audience um, is a struggle and, and I've struggled with it myself. And so I, I, I realize if you just keep at something and you keep listening to people and hearing how they're interpreting what you're saying, eventually you find the right way to communicate with them. And so, um, you know, as I've been doing human centered design and realizing how confusing of a term that is, mm -hmm. uh, it's allowed me to, to now use those same skills and processes that I've done, but, but do it through audience engagement. Um, and that's something that that matters to people. Human-centered design in itself um, might not directly connect with people, but but everyone needs more passionate supporters and that, that connects with them. 
what's something that you think you or your organization should stop doing? I think that um, I kind of want to stop being so positive in the nonprofit space. And I I almost hate to say it because I I certainly like being positive, but and I see that there's emotional needs um, that are very important and self-care is very important um, with the stressful sector. However, I think we also need to be more critical of our work, you know, to, to keep making it better. Um, and so sometimes I feel like I need to wrap everything in positivity yeah. and I'm just going to not feel the need to do that so much anymore. Huh, that's an interesting one. Let's also say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? I'd love to see more funding for experimenting. Hmm. As I mentioned before, there's a lot of funding for these big programs that get built up and then assessed later on. Mm -hmm. And I just see a lot of opportunity to um, fund some prototyping and and testing, as I mentioned before, uh, so that you can make those programs better before they even get started. Yeah, I love that one. (laughs) I also just feel like it allows for kind of a playground for new ideas and then also better ideas. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially this year when everything's changing, it seems like you can't do things the way they've been done. Mm -hmm. So it would be a great time to be able to test out three new ideas and, and choose the one that works best. Yeah, exactly. What's your favorite question to ask an organization or board member? Um, I like to ask them, why do people care about your organization? And it seems like a simple question, but but people rarely know the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it really starts to reveal a lot of assumptions people are making about their audience. Mm-hmm. And then you can dig deeper into those. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one too. How did you get started in the social impact space? I was very lucky. I had been volunteering a lot in the nonprofit sector And uh, I had an opportunity to lead a a new pilot nonprofit uh, called Design House, where I was able to leverage both my design skills and my passion for uh, the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to do that for a few years and really get involved in the the sector. And once I was there, I just couldn't look back. I loved it so much. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Um, just a good lateral move. Yeah, for sure. That is a pretty good lateral move. Just two more questions. Um, and these are probably my last two favorite questions, but what's a piece of advice that your parents gave you that you did or did not follow? I, my parents taught me the phrase, expect the worst and hope for the best. Mm. And I followed that for a long time, uh, but struggled a bit with it because when you expect the worst, it's hard to be optimistic about the future. Um, But when you hope for the best, you can sometimes not see things uh, that are, that you could do to improve what you're, where you're going. Mm -hmm. So I've been able to bounce back and forth and balance the two uh, and, and use that to, to not weigh heavily in either of those perspectives. Yeah, I also struggle with that phrase because even when you expect for the worst, it kind of doesn't feel as sweet when things go really, really well. (laughs) Yeah, you're just ready for the next thing to go wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'll have to rewrite that phrase. For sure. Let me know when you do. (laughs) Um, And then our last question, what's a piece of advice that you would give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? I think the 
social impact sector is so different now than it was 10 to 20 years ago. There's social enterprises, there's B Corps, there's corporate giving. And so I would encourage people to explore all the different ways they can um, do social good mm-hmm. and, and also jump in between. I think there's a lot the for-profit world and the nonprofit world can learn from each other, kind of as we're seeing with these, these different entities that are popping up in between, that can really lead to more success in both sectors. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a good one, too. Uh, that's the end of my rapid fire round. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Excellent. I love a good game show. For sure. So where can people find you? This has been Using the Whole so Whale podcast. So people can podcast. find me at uh, teenybig.com. Uh, I'm also very active others, on LinkedIn. Head on so over to wholewhale.com slash university awesome. to keep well, learning Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks as always um, to Greg Thomasmusic.org um, for his tunes that, that a lot of organizations can implement um, Hope you're doing today, well, Greg. tomorrow, next week, and next month. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please. Give a awesome. thought, Thank a you click again. and subscribe, and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.